Good morning, and welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Today is Saturday, November 12th, 2022, and we are broadcasting live from the northwest side of the city of Chicago. And welcome to the program. My name is David Canfield. I'll be your host for this hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions about the program, you can send those to notes at thechristianfaith.org. And if you listen to past editions of this program, uh, you can uh, click on the media uh, link on our website, and under there you'll find the podcast tab. And you can listen to the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast on either iTunes or Spotify. And I just have some feeling to uh, to begin this morning with, with a little prayer, because uh, we really are hoping the Lord will uh, give us the utterance to really uh, present uh, what we're talking about this morning. So, Father, we just give our time to you. We ask you to sanctify this time unto yourself and grant us the utterance and the boldness and the clarity we need to really speak these matters concerning uh, how you created the earth and uh, how we should believe that. And we ask you to bind what the enemy would do, even the, uh, the, the prince of the authority of the air as we send out this truth over the airwaves here in Chicago and by means of the podcast, we just say, have your way for your sake and your glory. We hide under your prevailing blood and under the cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> so, uh, last week, we briefly mentioned some of the objections uh, that people have to reading the Bible today, just in a very brief way. Because we're encouraging people to to, to spend time, even if, even if you're not a Christian, to it's very good to spend some time reading the Bible and to build, build up that habit of opening the Bible every day. But the Bible just doesn't have the kind of authority and the kind of readership in this country that it once did, and that's so sad. And so we were trying to deal just briefly with some, some of those objections. And the first reason we said why people don't read the Bible so much anymore is that we live in a scientific age. <clears throat> uh, everything has to be scientific. According to the thought today, if you, if you can't measure something, if you can't test it, if you can't weigh it, then it can't possibly be a standard for telling us what's true and what's not true. And that's the, the materialistic view of the universe, the rationalistic view, which really came out of the Enlightenment in the 1700s. And according to this view, the universe is all there is. And so there's nothing outside of the physical universe. And so we have to look for truth within the physical universe. And so, um, if we take this view, then we have no way to explain where the universe came from. We simply don't know what the universe came from. So, uh, to have a clear view of where the universe came from, we have to say there's something outside. There has to be something that caused the universe to exist in the first place. And that something, of course, is God himself. And the Bible is the book that tells us about God, of course. And so we encourage you to read the Bible for that reason. But another reason, of course, if you, if you take the materialistic view of the universe, then uh, you'll have the feeling my life has no purpose. My life has no real meaning. So uh, why do I exist? I'm just a speck here that exists for a brief time and then I pass away. So if we want to find out what is the purpose, what is the meaning of our existence, how the universe came into existence, and why it came into existence, then we have to come to the Bible because that's the book that shows us why God created the heavens, why he created the earth. 
And that tells us why we exist. So for that reason, we strongly encourage people to read the Bible. And we shouldn't uh, just because we, we want to be scientific. For surely we need for sure we need to be scientific, but um, uh, but we shouldn't limit ourselves to the scientific view of the universe. So we don't feel that's a valid objection to reading the Bible. However, there was one specific objection, uh, scientific objection to Bible reading that we felt we needed to deal with, and that has to do with the question of how old is the Earth. And we wanted to deal with this question because. According to some people, some Christians even, the Bible says that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And people look at that. They look at the scientific evidence that shows us that the earth is much, much older than that. Um, scientists probably say, for the most part, the earth is about uh, 4 billion years old, I think, and the universe maybe 15 billion years old. It's something like that. They always change a little bit here and there. But for sure, the scientific evidence shows us the earth is much, much older than 6,000 years old. So if the Bible tells us, if that's what the Bible really says, then people look at that and they say, oh, I don't have to believe the Bible because it's not true. It's a fable. And so I don't need to believe the Bible is the word of God and I don't need to read it. And so this has stumbled many, many people and kept many people from believing in the Bible. And so that's the question we want to deal with today. What does the Bible really say about the age of the earth? And just to give a, uh, a very brief summary of what we're going to be covering. Um, the view that the earth is 6,000 years old, that's called the young earth theory. And according to this view, in Genesis chapter 1, the uh, you have Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And according to the young earth theory, the rest of the chapter is the explanation of that verse. And so because of that, they say, and if you look at the chronologies in the Bible and you look at the uh, um, various manuscripts, it looks, it appears to be those events that are recorded in the rest of Genesis chapter 1 did take place about 6,000 years ago, roughly. It could be a little bit longer than that, maybe depending on which manuscripts you're looking at. It could be 7,000, maybe 9,000 years ago, but it's something in that time frame. It's nothing like a billion years. So if you feel that Genesis 1.1 is a summary statement, and the rest of Genesis chapter 1 explains that statement, then you have to have the view that the Bible does teach that the earth is 6,000 years old. That's the young earth theory. But there's another view uh, which people have held and which we absolutely hold to, which has a very different explanation of Genesis chapter 1. And that is that you have in Genesis chapter 1, the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that verse stands alone. It speaks of how God finished his original work of creation in that single verse, the first verse of Genesis. Then there's a gap of unknown duration. We simply don't know how long a period of time that gap uh, is. The Bible simply doesn't tell us. Then you have Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. It says in the King James Version. So there's a gap of time between those two verses, and we simply don't know how long that period of time is. And then you go on to what is what the rest of Genesis chapter 1 describes. So if that's the case, then the Bible is actually silent about the age of the earth. We simply don't know what the age of the earth is. 
according to the Bible. And that's the view, and we're going to get into this in a little more detail uh, pretty soon here in, in uh, the rest of the program. But like I said, that's just a summary view. So to believe the Bible is the word of God and that you have a historical account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, no, you don't need to say that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And that's so crucial uh, because it really, if you take the other view, the young earth view, then you're very clearly contradicting what is really very solid uh, scientific data about the age of the earth and the age of the universe and the geological ages. And people just realize that can't be true. You know, I appreciate it. One, one man uh, made a statement along these lines, uh, which I really appreciated. He said, the settled facts of science will always harmonize with the proper interpretation of the scripture. And it's really so. So if, if there's a, a real discrepancy between these two things, then something's wrong. Either uh, our understanding of the scientific view is wrong, and I would say, uh, you know, for sure, I, I, I absolutely don't agree with the theory of evolution, but there's no real proof for evolution. That's another, obviously, another program, obviously. But that seems to contradict the Genesis account. But there's no settled science in regards to the... Uh, the theory of evolution. Not really. They claim there is, but there really isn't. So if you have that kind of view, then that's going to cause a problem. But you don't need to worry about that because the science does not really support the theory of evolution, we would say. But when you have a, a solid scientific evidence, like you do with concerning the age of the earth and the age of the universe, if your Bible teaching contradicts that, then you need to go back to the Bible and figure out, so there's got to be something wrong here. I need to Maybe reconsider my understanding of what the Bible is showing us. And when you do that, when you look at the um, teaching of the Bible, then, uh, then you come to this realization, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't really say the earth is 6,000 years old. It, it, it's silent as to the age of the earth. And we're going to get into that, the, ev the biblical evidence for that here in just a little bit. But before I do, I want to address this question. Why, is this, why does this matter? Why does it why is it so important to have uh, a proper view of Genesis chapter 1 and even to believe that it's a historical account uh, and a literal account of creation? You know, when I say, when some people, when they hear me say that I don't agree that the earth is 6,000 years old, then they will, they'll assume, well, you must be a modernist. You must believe like the day-age theory. Um, you know, each of the days in Genesis is maybe, you know, a gazillion years. We don't really know how, how long those days are talking about. Because some people, they, they like to be intelligent Christians. They like to be, you know, they don't want to be like uh, over-the-top kind of Christians. You know, I'm, I'm not that kind of Christian who believes in that, in a, uh, that the events recorded in Genesis are, are literal. I'm, I would never believe that. But why is it important that we do believe exactly that and, and harmonize what's in Genesis with what science teaches us. Because it's important because we have to be those who take the word of God in the way that Jesus did. And when we see how Jesus came to the scriptures, he was absolutely a literalist. So to speak, you could say he was a fundamentalist. I wouldn't say that in a negative connotation of that word at all. But he was very, very fundamental in his view of the scriptures. He constantly affirmed uh, throughout his ministry that the stories contained in the Old Testament were actual events, things that really happened. And he talked about the flood as it was in the days of Noah. Uh, he talked about... Uh, 
Lot's wife. And that's a remarkable story about in, um, in Genesis 19 about how Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. And he says uh, in Luke, I believe it's chapter 17, remember Lot's wife. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and their judgment. Uh, and he does talk about uh, how in the beginning God created the male and female. In every one of those instances, he strongly affirms the Bible is giving us a historical, literal account of what happened. And we've covered this. I'm not going to say much more about this now because we covered that in the very first podcast, uh, well, radio programs we ever did. And I'd encourage you to listen those. Listen to those. Uh, it's a podcast episode one and two. And it, it's easy to get to. Just go to our website the, or type in thechristianfaith.org forward slash then the word podcast and then dash one or podcast dash two. We try to make the numbering as easy as possible. And listen to those programs because in those programs we consider how Jesus came to the scripture. And we need to follow him in how we come to the scripture because if we don't have this kind of view of Genesis, we'll never have uh, a solid view of the rest of the scripture. You just can't. Genesis is the foundation for everything else that appears in the rest of the Bible. All the seeds that develop and that grow up later on in the Bible are sown in the book of Genesis, and especially in the first three chapters of Genesis, concerning the creation of man, concerning God's purpose, and concerning the fall and God's redemptive work. All those seeds are sown in the first three chapters of Genesis. So if we don't have a strong, solid view of, of the book of Genesis, we can never be solid in our faith. It's just not, it's not possible. And the Lord showed us uh, in his own ministry, he showed us uh, the kind of view we should have of the scriptures. And that's how we really should follow him today. So if you don't have that kind of a view of the scriptures, don't say you're a follower of Christ. If you think you can take the scriptures in a, like these allegories, like they, these aren't actual events, you are not following Christ. Not in his view of the scriptures and your faith will never be very firm. You know, in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus, uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, he makes this statement. Listen to what Jesus says. If you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That's John chapter 5, uh, verses 46 and 47, the last two verses in the chapter. So he strongly says here, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, you're not going to be able to believe my words. That's not going to happen. You can't do that. So again, I would strongly say, if you don't take the events that are recorded in Genesis as actual historical, literal events, then you're not able to follow Christ because you're not believing the words that Moses wrote. He said, you can't believe what I say either. Now, there are times, I want to be clear, there are times when the Bible is not literal for sure. Uh, you, when I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a biblical a literalist, what I mean is when the Bible is meant to be taken literally, I take it literally. But there's times when it is figurative. But it's not in Genesis. Uh, there's really no figurative um, statements that I'm aware of in, in, in the whole book of Genesis. It's all a historical account of creation and of uh, the early times of man upon the earth. And Jesus says, if you don't believe that, what Moses wrote, you're not going to be able to believe what I said either. And it's very striking. Actually, even that statement is very striking. Because he said, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, you know, for a long time, uh, so many critics of the Bible and those who tried to undermine the authority of the Bible, their teaching was, well, there was no writing way back then. We weren't developed enough to have writing at that point. 
so Moses couldn't have written anything down. So when we say that uh, these were, books are written by Moses, then obviously that's false, and that's how we know that the Bible isn't true. Well, then later on they found out, no, there was plenty of uh, uh, writing that went on much before uh, the time of Moses. And of course, it's different from how we would write things today, but they were writing things down is the point. And Jesus here strongly affirms, he says, Moses wrote. He doesn't say what Moses said. It specifically says twice in these verses what Moses wrote. If you don't believe his writings, you're not going to be able to believe what I say either. So again, I would strongly say uh, we should have a very, very high view of the scriptures if we want to be followers of Jesus. And there's another verse too. It's in John chapter 3, uh, verse 12. This is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about the new birth, which is so crucial. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, and I would say um, some of those listening to this podcast may feel they don't need to be born again. Jesus said you must be born again if you want to be a follower of Christ. You know, some people say, uh, uh, I consider myself a Christian. I would say very bluntly, I have never in my life heard a single person say that who actually was a believer in Jesus Christ, who really was a Christian. If you're a believer in Christ, you know that. It's not, I consider myself a Christian. It's because you've had the new birth. You've been born anew in Christ. And there's no question in your mind about that. Now, you're not going to say that anymore. I consider myself a Christian. You're going, to, you're going to say, I am a Christian. And that happens when we experience a new birth by opening our heart to the Lord and saying, Lord, I believe in you as my Savior. If you have this thought that you consider yourself a Christian, I would ask you to consider again, have you experienced the new birth in Christ? That's John 3, chapter 7. Actually, the whole passage from uh, John chapter 3, verse 3. But in John 3, 7, Jesus says, he says it very directly, you must be born again. So that's his word. That's not my word. And uh, so I'd ask you to consider that. But, but later on in that passage, in chapter 3, verse 12, because Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Uh, and Jesus, so Jesus told him, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So here you see the same principle. If you don't believe the earthly things the Bible tells us about, and there are so many earthly things the Bible tells us about, if you don't believe those, you cannot believe what Jesus tells you about the heavenly things. Because a lot of people today, a lot of you know, modernists, so to speak, intelligent, so to speak, uh, Christians feel, well, I'm, I'm too intelligent to really believe what the Bible says about uh, creation and about the early events in, in the book of Genesis. I'm just going to believe the spiritual things in the New Testament. Jesus says strongly, you can't do that. If you reject what's recorded in Genesis, don't think you can ever really believe what's spoken of in the New Testament. Let me quote that verse again. Again, this is John chapter 3, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So again, that's why it's so crucial to have a proper understanding and a real, genuine, firm belief in what's recorded in the book of Genesis because that gives us a solid basis for believing what's spoken of in the rest of the scripture. That's why this topic is so important. That's why we're, we're, we're quite burdened for it. So that's enough for this segment of the program. And in the next segment, now we'll come to this, this gap theory and explain why that is the proper view of what's spoken of in Genesis chapter 1. So we will be back with you on the other side of the break. This program is produced along with our website, thechristianfaith.org, to help address the need for a healthy word of ministry among God's children today. 
in the Old Testament, the Lord tells us through the prophet Hosea, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Our prayer is that the Lord, by his mercy, may use the ChristianFaith.org website and the Christian Faith Radio Hour to help the believers in Christ grow in our knowledge, both of our Savior and of our faith in him, so that we may stand more firmly for the Lord and for his purpose in these dark times. Visit us online for articles on the Bible and the Christian life, and to sign up for our e-letter, which deals with various biblical topics. To listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab, or directly on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions or comments about what you've heard on this program or on our website, or about the Christian faith in general, send us a note at questions at thechristianfaith.org. May this program and the ChristianFaith.org website be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and to all of God's children, for His sake and His glory. Amen. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. And so in this segment, we want to talk about, uh, just explain what is the gap theory, this other, this alternate view of Genesis chapter 1. Now, when I say this is what we teach, I'm talking about basically all of those who have uh, held this view. And it has been held uh, somewhat widely for about the past 150 years, but less so in recent years. In recent years, the younger theory, for whatever reason, has uh, really gained more traction and the the gap theory has kind of receded. Um, But the Schofield, if you know the Schofield Study Bible, uh, that was the view that Schofield took. And that was a very important and still is a very important uh, resource for biblical teaching among uh, Bible-believing Christians. And Schofield held to the gap theory. Uh, You can look at his note. He has a note on uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I think it might be verse 2. Uh, And he says this, he says, There are but three creative acts in this chapter, the heavens and the earth, animal life, and human life. The first creative act, in other words, what's spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, refers to the dateless past and gives scope for all the geologic ages. So he he states the gap theory in a very concise way. Genesis 1-1 took place in, we have no idea how long ago that took place. And that leaves room between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 for the geologic ages, as he puts it. So he teaches the gap theory. And like I say, that's a very important resource for Bible-believing Christians today. And I would actually, actually, I strongly recommend it, the Schofield Study Bible, the 1917 edition. Not There's something called the New Schofield Study Bible. I'm not talking about that. That's a very different thing. But the Schofield Study Bible, the 1917 edition, is a very valuable resource for getting uh, fundamental basic principles of the Bible. And if, if you haven't looked at that, I encourage you to get a copy and to uh, read through the, the notes on that. It's very, very helpful in understanding the principles of the Bible. So that's Schofield. But the one who uh, first really developed this theory was a man named G.H. Pember. And he was a very important student of biblical prophecy in the 1800s. And he came out with a book uh, in 1876 called Earth's Earliest Ages. And again, we'll link link to this in the podcast. It's called Earth's Earliest Ages. And that's where he set forth this gap theory and really developed that theory. 
Uh, I think in 1876, as I understand it, I haven't seen an edition, that edition, but apparently that was a, a shorter version. And later on, he much expanded it. What we have today, uh, what you can get today, is the third edition, which is much larger. And that came out a little bit later. But basically, in the mid-1800s, that's when he set forth this theory. And, uh, and others have adopted it since then. And again, his name was G.H. <clears throat> uh, Pember. So... So what's the evidence for this theory? And, and, and of course, uh, to explain this, we're going to be drawing pretty heavily upon Mr. Pember's writings. So um, he has this statement. And again, it kind of it go, it's along the lines of what Mr. Schofield said later. But Pember says this, When rightly understood, the Bible is found to have left an interval of undefined magnitude between creation and the post-tertiary period and men may bridge it as they can with their discoveries without fear of impugning the word of God. So in other words, we simply don't know how long that period was between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Uh, it could be however long, it may be a billion years. How, for that, you have to look to science. The Bible is silent, so if you want to find out how long that period is, you really need to look at science. So that's kind of his brief presentation of this view. Now, his feeling is that the, the young earth theory, the view uh, that Genesis 1-2 begins to explain Genesis 1-1, he feels that view really came out of the ancient pagan cosmologies. Because uh, in Greece and Rome, they basically said their, their teaching was that uh, there, there was this, something called chaos in the ancient past, and the earth sprang out of that. Now, he quotes Ovid. The ancient uh, Greek poet, I think, I think he was a Greek poet, possibly Roman. Uh, but Ovid states this: "There was but one appearance of nature throughout the whole world. This they called chaos, an unformed and confused bulk. Eventually, the earth was formed from this confused bulk." That last statement is, is my summary. Um, but that's the pagan view, and to some extent, Pember says the. Early Christians were influenced by this view when they read Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So they're saying that um, was the kind of chaos that out of which God formed the earth. Was, he says influenced by the pagan view. But to really understand what Genesis 1 is talking about, we have to come back to the actual scripture itself and find where's the evidence? What's the evidence for believing one way or the other? Is, it, is Genesis 1-1 a summary or is, the, is Genesis chapter 1 a, a summary of the first verse or is it something different? And the first evidence that we have is in verse 2 itself. And that's this phrase, the earth was without form and void. Very striking phrase. The word there... Uh, without form, or formless in some translations. Uh, it's not a neutral word. It's a very negative word, actually, in the scripture. Uh, and I'm not, I don't know uh, Hebrew, but those who've looked at it uh, would say it's a negative word. Now, Gesenius is a very highly regarded Hebrew scholars, scholar. And in his lexicon, he says this, the word indicates wasteness, laid waste, destruction, a desolated city. In other words, this word denotes that some judgment has taken place. And that's uh, the, the gap theory states that 
what happened in that gap between the original creation and verse 2 in Genesis was God judged the earth. There was Satan rebelled during this period. Now, we can't um, say too much about that in this program. But basically, in brief, Satan rebelled, and there were inhabitants of the earth prior to Adam and Eve who joined in that rebellion against God. And as a result, that brought in God's judgment on the earth and left the worst, left the earth formless and void. That's uh, what brought forth that situation on the earth. So that's why this word is used. Uh, uh, this word indicates wasteness, as Gesenius says, wasteness, laid waste, destruction, a desolated city. It's a very, very negative word. Now, this phrase, formless and void, this phrase only appears, or these words are only found together two other times in Scripture. And again, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So is this view correct, that the gap theory says that Genesis 1-2 was the result of a judgment of God? Is that plausible based on the rest of Scripture? Well, let's look at where those, that verses, those words appear. The first one is in Isaiah. Uh, it's chapter 34. And that's when God... Uh, Isaiah uh, is telling us of God's judgment on the land of Edom. And there he says, uh, he will stretch over, over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. And that those are, it's in Hebrew, it's the same words that are found in Genesis chapter 1. The confusion there is the Hebrew word, I think it's pronounced uh, tohu, and uh, emptiness there is pronounced uh, bohu. That's the, the other word. That's the word for uh, uh, formless and void. The second word, void, there is the, the word emptiness here in the New King James Version in chapter uh, Isaiah 34, 11. So you find these two words together and they're speaking of God's judgment, the situation brought in by God's judgment. Now, let me read the whole uh, passage here. This, these uh, few verses are speaking of God's judgment here on Edom in this verse to give you the context for what this says. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned to pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. And the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And then he says, And he shall stretch over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, and none shall be there, and all its princes shall be nothing. So as a result of God's judgment, the situation became a situation of confusion and emptiness. Or as you have in Genesis chapter 1, where everything was formless and void. It's the result of God's judgment. So that's strong evidence that shows that just as in Isaiah 34, the situation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 resulted from God's judgment. But there's one other passage where these uh, uh, verses are found together, and it's even more direct, and that's in Jeremiah chapter 4. And I'll just read this, uh, this passage because it's so direct. Uh, this is Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 26. And I beheld the earth, and it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. 
So did you see that in the first verse there in, in Jeremiah uh, 5.23, or sorry, Jeremiah 4.23, he says, I beheld the earth. So that's talking about the original creator. Uh, uh, that's talking about Genesis chapter 1. He says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. That's the same exact phrase that appears in Genesis chapter 1. And then he goes on, the heavens they had no light, I beheld the mountains, etc. And he ends that, all the cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. That tells us, it's telling us very specifically, that what you see, the formless and void state of the earth, that you see in Genesis chapter 1 was a result of God's judgment and of his fierce anger. It was not the original creation. And again, these are negative words in the scripture. You know, when uh, in Job chapter 38, God is speaking uh, to Job. And he says, where were you uh, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God's original creation was so wonderful, that the, speaking of the angels here, that the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Will they have that kind of response if what God creates is waste and void? I don't think so. Genesis 1-2 is not talking about God's original creation. It's talking about the earth as it existed subsequent to the creation. Uh, it's, it, when you compare that with the rest of the scripture, there's really no question about that. But there's one other verse that's even more direct uh, than that. And, and this verse really is the rock uh, upon which the young earth theory really is shattered. Uh, they simply have no answer for this verse. Uh, and that is... Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. Uh, so um, again, I'll just read the verse here. Uh, but then I'll have to come back and explain it a little bit. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. Now you have to say a little bit about this because it's not, unfortunately, there's a little the translation here obscures the meaning. But uh, when it says, who did not create it in vain, that's the same Hebrew word that is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that word tohu. So, um, who did not create it, tohu. Or if you use the, the English translation that you have in uh, uh, Genesis 1, 2, who did not create it, formless. That's a direct statement. That's not how I created the earth. That's not how the earth was originally created. Now, some translations are even uh, obscure it more than this. Like, uh, I think it's the NIV. They, they add words. They say, who did not create it to be formless. But those words are not in the Hebrew. They're not in the Hebrew. So, uh, the, the, original, the actual translation here should be whatever word you use in Genesis 1-2, you should use here. So, if you say who did not, uh, the earth was formless, then you have to say here, who did not create it formless? Or if you say waste, and the earth was waste, then you say, you have to say the earth, uh, who did not create the earth waste. But you just use the Hebrew, who did not create the earth tohu. That is not how God created 
the earth at all. And so there's a direct statement in the Bible along these lines. Uh, and so that really shows Genesis, the young earth theory, is not biblical. It's not correct. And I know the, the, the dear brothers and sisters who promote this view, they're trying to defend the Bible. To some extent, they're trying to help God and they're sincere. I appreciate that. But actually, this theory has done so much damage, so much damage to the credibility of the Bible. And, and we have to have a much more serious and sober view uh, of the Bible than simply reading it in a superficial way. I and mean, that's what we're going to talk about in the, in the, the next segment. But here was, here's Pember's comment uh, about uh, the damage that this theory has done. And remember, he's writing, this uh, came out, this may have come out as early as 1876, this statement. So this has been going on for a very long time. Um, and, and again, he feels that this young earth view had, was much related to ancient pagan cosmology and influenced by that. But in any event, he certainly feels this way. He says the guile of the serpent may be detected in its results. So wherever this theory came from, the guile of the serpent may be detected in its results for how great a contest it has provoked between the church and the world. How ready a handle do the geological difficulties involved in it present to the assailants of Scripture? And that's exactly what we said at the beginning of this program. So many people don't believe the Bible because they've been told the Bible teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. I would say they've been falsely told that the Bible teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. There is no biblical evidence for that viewpoint. Now, there are a couple of objections, just to, to wrap up here, that to, to, to deal with briefly. That um, just In Genesis 1-2, uh, like the King James and just about all the translations, they say uh, that the earth was formless and void. So that would indicate that it's an explanation of what happened in verse 1. However, the Hebrew word can also be translated there. The Hebrew word there can also be translated became. And it's translated that way in Genesis chapter 19 when it says Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. That's the same Hebrew word. So that's a valid translation of that verse. It's not common, but it is a valid translation. And in this case, it's the right translation because it fits with the other biblical evidence that we have. So the proper way to understand that verse is the earth became formless and void. And when you translate it that way, then it becomes very clear. Oh, there is the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is subsequent to what happened in, not, in verse 1. It's not a summary of what happened in verse 1. Now, the other verse people try to use to discredit the, uh, the gap theory is uh, in Romans chapter 5. Um, it says, uh, it's uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. As through, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and death, thus, thus death passed on to all men, because all have sinned. So this verse says that sin entered into the world through Adam. And so the young earth believers, they say, rather, it entered into the world through Adam. So the young earth believers say there could not have been sin prior to the time of Adam. And the young, the, those who believe in the gap theory strongly say no. There was a pre-Adamic race. It was judged by God just by a flood, just as it, the earth was judged at the time of Noah by a flood. But the young earthers say no, that means there would have been sin and judgment and death on the earth prior to the time of Adam. And this verse says that there wasn't. Well, 
read what the verse says. It, it says, it doesn't say there was no sin and death on the earth. It says, through one man, sin entered into the world. That's a different uh, word. It's not talking about there was never anything like that on the earth before. The world refers to the, the cosmos, uh, the arrangement that um, we have. Uh, frankly, it's Satan's kingdom on the earth today. It's saying uh, sin in its negative sense. The sin entered into that world through Adam's disobedience. But it does not mean, there's no way you can use this verse to say there was never any death or sin on the earth as a whole prior to the time of Adam. It's talking about what happened at the time of Adam, not before then. So this verse provides no basis for saying that there was no um, uh, no death or sin on the earth prior to the time of Adam. You just can't use it that way. And those are the only real two objections that people have to the gap theory. And so when you look at the biblical evidence, uh, you really see that's... Uh, that uh, that is the clear teaching. It is a deeper teaching of the scripture. Maybe put it that way. You do have to look at it, and that's what we're going to begin to discuss now with our our guest, Brother Mark Jordan from Indiana. That how we should come to the Bible, how sh how we should approach the Bible, not just take things in a superficial way, because not, sometimes not everything in the Bible is on the surface. And so we're going to bring Mark on now. And Brother Mark, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 You sound good. Yeah. And. Uh, Mark, um, I'm sorry, I just uh, uh, a lot to say, so I wanted to try to to give you some time here because I know you have a lot of feeling about this and uh, whether uh, something I've shared or your your burden uh, to talk about how we need to come to the scripture in general. But but go ahead. So uh, the book Earth's Earliest Ages was shocking and revelation. It, re it was uh, revolutionized my thinking when I read it back in my twenties. I was a young guy college educated, thought of myself, tried to be an intellectual, failed. I decided eventually I was just a pseudo-intellectual, but, you know, that's better than nothing, right? At any rate, I read that book, and I had, you know, been gone through a lot of thought about, you know, how science seemed to deny how I'd been raised, which was as a young earther. And it was troubling to me just like the theory of evolution was troubling to me. Because when you got this whole community of so-called scientists screaming that this is the way we all it all is, and your Bible is a fable, as you said earlier, um, I just, it really, I didn't know how to deal with it. Because I, number one, I really believe the Bible was the Word of God. That's just in me, and I can't yeah. ever speak that. So when I read that book, and discovered Pember's theory, which you've laid out, it was shocking to me, and it solved a lot of problems for me. You have only touched on a few, but one of them, it solved the problem of the age of the Earth. And I knew by that point, I, I, I have a, a Bachelor of Science in English. I'm one of the few English teachers in America, I think, that have a <laughs> Bachelor of Science degree instead of art, because I like science. And when I... Uh, saw that, you know, I knew that some of the stars we look at from the sky, the light from them is over 20,000 years old. You're looking into the past when you see a star twinkling. Yeah. The sun is eight minutes old. If the sun blew up and disappeared, we'd have eight minutes to enjoy life in complete obliviousness. It would hmm. take eight minutes because that's how long it takes for that light to get to us. Wow. That's the sun, which is so close. So I knew there are stars older than the young Earth theory allows for. 
and you talk about things the young earthers can't argue. That's one of them. They they have arguments. Trust me, they, everybody has arguments, but they don't have good arguments. So here I see this theory that there's this gap between Genesis one one and one two, and it 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 really changed my view of a lot of things. So I came up with the term. This is a trap door. Hmm. Between there's a little seam. There's a seam between Genesis one. One and one, two, that if you're walking superficially quickly as you read through the Bible, you'll walk right over and not notice. And it's hidden by, as you have pointed out, the English translation. We don't have the Hebrew. If we had, if we were Jewish readers of the Bible, we might, it might be more obvious there's something a little fishy going on here. But as we get the translation, and, and almost all the translators did not see a gap, so they were free to not show that seam, that little doorway, that passageway. And um, so when I saw this, and I looked at all the Hebrew and all the logic, there's an argument. I mean, I have young earth friends who who will defy everything you just said about <laughs> the Hebrew use of this and that. They have their arguments, but for me, it just opened up possibilities. Yeah, that was my when I first heard this. That was my reaction. I appreciate what you're saying. It, for one, there's a principle: not everything that's in the Bible is on the surface, and I I agree. This this is not on the surface. Uh, you might, especially when you read the English translations, you're going to come to that that conclusion. You you could view it, you know, the way the young earthers do. But when you look at it in a more s- sober way, in a more in a deeper way, that's when you see. Wait a minute, there's something more here. So I like your phrase, Mark. In a sense, there's a trap door there, and you have to see that before you can really get what's going on in Genesis chapter one. Really, so. Well, one of the things you said earlier in the program was how Jesus said, how can you believe, you've read Moses, if you don't believe Moses, how are you yeah. going to believe me? You know, that was his message after he resurrected, is he opened up Moses. And they thought they believed Moses. They, but he said, you don't mm. understand. Mm. Moses wrote about me. That's in John. He talks about this a lot. He broke when he opened, when he broke the bread there for the two walking on the road to Emmaus, just yeah. the day of his resurrection. Prior to that, he had just opened up the scriptures to them. They had never seen these things. He he was opening trap door after trap door after trap door, but they still didn't recognize him. Then he broke the bread, and the scales fell off their eyes, and then he disappeared. And so he was doing. The young earthers, I think, need that bread breaking moment. Hmm. And in a lot of respects, there are all kinds of things we don't see. You read the whole Old Testament, the whole law, and it's really a portrait of Christ in most respects. The Passover lamb is a portrait of Christ. Really so. Adam, is a, Adam when he went into a, quote, <clears throat> deep sleep, you know, you just read it superficially. You don't see this little trap door of very important information. God put Adam into a deep sleep to make him his bride, his mate. That deep sleep is just Christ on the cross. The deep sleep, it's not just a sleep, it's deep. That means he died. So Adam is a little replica of God. He died, and Jesus died on the cross. And out of him came something from which God then fashioned a, a bride. In fact, there's another trap door there. The word, the Hebrew word, which I can't think of off the top of my head for when he made Eve, isn't the same as when he made Adam. English translations, the best you can come up with is he built Eve, like piece by piece, and that she's the church. Wow. So it's a building. Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my, he could have said bride, 
he says church there. And again, that's a translation. So these trap doors are hidden by their language problems and by all kinds of things and by interpretations. And I just really believe the uh, problem that most Christians have, like with the age of the earth thing, that I really defend the young earthers because on this re- respect, I've been to the Creation Museum and I'm just, I marveled at it. It's such a it's a well-done museum. It's right up there with the best of them. Mm, I, I, I haven't been, but yeah, I would, I would like to get there. I, like, I want to get down there and see the Ark, too, but like I keep saying, you got to see that, I think, on a really rainy day. That would kind of make the whole experience. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. I, I would. that'd be nice. Yeah. I'm going to go back just, just to see the Ark. Yeah. But I went skeptical. I went very skeptical because I'm not a young earther. Right. And I, they present their argument. You walk through it, and they, they give you the argument, and they do it in, a, I think, a pretty fair way. It's even-handed. And again, well done. I, this is an Australian man who did it, Ken Ham. Ken Ham, right. And I think he was a school teacher. And I, I think, how many school teachers? I'm a former school teacher. I don't know many that have, could have produced something like that, especially in a, not even his home nation. Mm-hmm. And so I give him a lot of credit. And I also credit he is, and I share one thing in common. We want the Bible to be held as the Word of God. Amen. Yeah. But he thinks he thinks in defending it. In defending it, he does a mistake. He defends it according to his interpretation. This is what happened with Galileo. Galileo, in his day, was a man of God. He was studying for the minute the priesthood. He shifted the science, mm-hmm. and he's brilliant. Everybody should read his story. I I could speak an hour on this. And the church, the lottery, the the church of the day, the Pope had problems with Galileo for other reasons, and he had his own problems, and he was paranoid. But they really believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, and they have their verses. One that comes to mind for me right now is Zechariah twelve one, says God stretched forth the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. So. In that verse, they say, look, the heavens are are like the staging for the earth, and the earth is the staging for man, and that's the center of the universe. They're right that it's the center of God's plan, right? but they're wrong that it's the center of the physical universe. That's the mistake. And uh, so they're defending an interpretation. They're not defending the Bible. They think they are. They're defending their interpretation, and they'll take it to incredible lengths. And they won't. It's just some people just refuse to give up their interpretation. To me, in the story of Galileo, the ultimate message for, for the Church, and even for Galileo, is humility. Because a lot of people don't realize that when Galileo proved that the Earth doesn't go around the Sun, or excuse me, the Sun doesn't go around the Earth, which the Church taught, because the Earth was the center. He said, no, no, it's the other way around. And he was right, but then he made a mistake himself. He said the sun is the center of the universe, and it isn't. (laughs) So if you look from the vast scope of where God stands, you'd have to laugh at that, because where is the solar system in this whole uh, panorama? It's not the center. There may not even be a center. The Big Bangers would basically say it's exploding and moving outward. Is there a center? So... Well, it's like, you know, how we come to the Bible in a, in a very real sense is, is very analogous to how the scientists need to come to the universe. I mean, the physical universe is fixed, but our understanding of the universe changes and it develops and grows. And in the same way, the Bible is fixed. There's no more new revelation, but we need to continually adjust and adapt our uh, understanding of the Bible to new information and to new insights and, and, and 
ever since, uh, well, especially since the 1500s, really a bit earlier with Wycliffe and Huss and so on, our understanding of the Bible has been increasing. And in the 1800s, uh, Mr. Pember developed this view, which was, uh, you know, really a, a new way of looking at the Scripture. But it didn't mean that the Scripture hadn't changed, but our understanding of the Scripture changed, just like very often people's understanding of uh, the universe changes. Even though the underlying thing hasn't changed, it's our understanding that's changed. And that, like you say, Mark, that's because we look at the Bible in a more in-depth, more serious kind of way. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, see, Galileo invented the telescope. Yeah, you said he also uh, helped invent the clock, right? I didn't know that. Is that right? Well, he was instrumental in that because he studied pendulums. But the telescope, it was was a device. And he could look closer. He could see what the naked eye, and when I, it's kind of like what the superficial eye can't see. Mm. We today, you were talking about the tohu and bohu, and you said you said that you were cautious, I know, because you didn't want to say something about, even mispronounce the word, because yeah, there right. may be a Hebrew a scholar listening. Right. And uh, that's legitimate. But we have so many telescopes to look at the Bible through now. We have the Internet. It's amazing. It's so full of tools, so full of telescopes where you can zoom in on portions of the Bible and all the language difficulties and the translation, and you can anybody can do it, and people don't. But it's just there. BibleGateway.com gives you all the translations. You can yeah. look at what all the translations say in any given verse. There, and there's just resource after resource. Yeah. These telescopes, these inventions, help us to do and see the trap doors. Well, and the oh, trap doors. Go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, the the trap doors are often we miss them because of. We have bias and preconceived right. notions. And, but we defend, I'm telling you, the young earthers did the same mistake that Eve did. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent said to Eve, um, you know, well, has God really said that you can't eat from these trees? And by the way, there's a translational problem there, because some people say, did he ask any of the trees or all of the trees? It makes a difference, a big difference. But anyway, Eve makes a mistake. She's defending the Bible. Her Bible in that day was the Word of God that she probably got from Adam, which was, you can eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So she says that. God bless her. She quotes the Bible that she's been told. And then she adds something. She says, you shouldn't even touch it. She's saying, don't, she's really, she's underscoring what God said. She's going to make it more, more severe. Don't he, and the Bible mm. doesn't say that. God didn't say that. God never said you can't touch that tree. In fact, I argue you should touch that tree. You should grab knowledge like we're doing right now. You should study Pember. You should study Hebrew. You should study the text. That's touching the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she said no, because she's trying to do a good deed. And in the end, what grief it causes and at the end of the Bible, five verses from the end, a warning is given. Do not add mm. to the word of, in mm. that case, Revelation, well. but it's to the whole Scripture. So I think the young earthers, God bless them, and I have true friends that are young earthers, and I fellowship with them. They really, in, a, in the right way, want to defend, like Eve, defend God's word. But they add something more, and it's, it biases them. They think it's their religious duty. And it's unfortunate for all of us, because then it sets us up to say we're on a 6,000-year-old Earth. Which, which we know is not sky. true. Oh, yeah. When I went yeah. to the Grand Canyon about three years ago, I'd, I'd never been there. And I looked at it, and I said, no, this is, I'm looking at proof that this is yeah. more than 6,000 years old. I don't need anyone to tell me yeah. that formed 
it takes a long time. You know, Dave, you know, 6,000 years, not that long. I know, I know, I've known a few hundred-year-old people. I know a man right now who's approaching 100. If you took 10 of those 100-year-old lifetimes and laid them in a, yeah. in a sequence, that'd be, a, that'd be what, a thousand years? Yeah. And if you multiply that times six, that's 6,100-year-old 6, 6, men laid end-to-end, end, and that's when they think, they think it's, that's so young, it's unbelievable. Really it's so. just unbelievable on the surface. You just really walk so. out, you look at the hills, you look at, to me, you into it. The average person can into it. There's age here. And yeah, once really they've so. got some science and, and some understanding, we Christians needed an explanation. G.H. Pember offers one. It's not a yeah. perfect argument. There's parts about his argument I disagree with. But I really think the takeaway from the Galileo story, and I yeah. really, uh, this week I, 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 burned, I, lay, I really dug into this. We have about a half minute, Mark. We need to be humble. And um, I think even when we proclaim, even when I say, well, I believe in the gap theorizer, I need to be humble. Maybe, hey, maybe it is 6,000 years old. And maybe <laughs> God did, like some of my friends said. Maybe he set it up as a test and a trick for us. And he gave everything the appearance of age. Well, it, of argument. We've tried to present the, the evidence, which I think is very solid. No, the, the, the other way. And, I, and you know, I appreciate, like you say, the, the sincerity of, of the young earthers. But like... like uh, Pember says, how ready a handle do the geological difficulties involved in it present to the assailants of Scripture? So so this proper view, I think, really makes a big difference in having that view. But uh, uh, but that's about that's about all we have time for right now. So, uh, Mark, thanks for joining us for those for those thoughts. And uh, we probably need to say more about this topic. I think I think there's more to say, but but that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Mark, so much for joining us. And okay. uh, and to the. Uh, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us, and as the Lord wills, we hope to be with you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.